Hello, I'm Paige, and this is the Euro Intelligence Podcast covering current affairs in the EU and Eurozone. I'm joined by Wolfgang and Suzanne, directors of Euro Intelligence here in Oxford. Ugh, guys. I will quote my own Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who said, This pandemic really sucks. We knew it was heading in this direction, but Merkel and Macron confirmed it yesterday. There's two new lockdowns in Germany and France. They won't be as restrictive as the ones in March, but it is still a massive downer. Wolfgang, you've been writing about whether these lockdowns will be enough to stop the spread and how politics will change after the second wave. What's happening in Germany right now? Uh, Germany has, is panicking. For the first time, they're panicking. Um, they, they saw those forecasts. They didn't believe them. And well, they came true. And then Merkel was the first to panic. Two weeks ago, she tried to get the state premiers to uh, change the rules. She failed two weeks ago. She got only a very limited set of agreements. In Germany, it's all state level, it's not federal level. So, so her role is basically to seek a consensus among the state princes. And this week, she managed to get the consensus going and, uh, and they agreed on the partial lockdown um, because nobody wanted to be responsible for the rise in hospitalizations. What is sort of happening is that Germany came out of the first wave rather confident, if not arrogant, <laughs> the belief that they're better than they've, they've handled it better than others. And they did handle it better than others. They had lower rates. They had a good first wave. They did. Uh, but, you know, it, but there's so much about COVID-19 we still don't know. And we don't know what happened back then, really. And I, I do. I, I was reading um, some, so a few months ago um, a study on the SARS. Um, on the SARS epidemic from uh, 2012. And it was only at, at around that time that they had an idea of how it actually happened. That was many, many years afterwards. They had to look at lots of data. Now, all of us trying to sort of make sense of this in real time. This is, this is difficult. We're comparing data across countries, which we shouldn't do. We, should, you know, we, we, we can't even compare data across waves because we are testing differently now than we tested in the first wave. I think what is happening in Germany is, is, is sort of a, a slow realization that they're no, that they're perhaps not that different from the rest of Europe, and they are they're still doing better. If you look at the the certainly the reported rates uh, of infections, uh, certainly the hospitalization rates that that's probably a better a better statistic. The fatalities are a better statistic, but you know it's it's even the german system which is which has a lot more hospital beds could be overwhelmed in in a couple of weeks if the current rate of infection continues to rise so that's that's sort of happening and in the middle of all this you have a crisis in the cdu about the about the about the leadership the cdu decided to postpone the leadership election prompting friedrich merz to accuse them of trying to undermine his his bid it's a difficult one because it, it is typical Merz. He's just, you know, he's a, he's in a situation like that, just thinking about himself. That's sort of everybody saying, I mean, my God, I mean, this is not the thing you want to, you know, the comment you want to make in this week. The problem with this, and I, I'd say the same. And, you know, I've, you know, Merz is a, is a, is a kind of guy from the 1990s. No? So it's, it's sort of astonishing <laughs> that he's still around. Uh, and he, he's disappeared for a long time. He just came back. Um, people are surprised he was still alive, but he was, and now he's sort of possibly still, you know, still uh, a candidate, and you know, he's got good chances. There's still a lot of old people who have fond memories of the 1990s and who might want him back in the business. Just miss him because he's kind of a blast from the past. The problem is he's probably right with his accusation that they don't want him to. I mean, Merkel certainly doesn't want him to run. 
the the excuse or the reason they said they can't hold a conference. Of course, they can't hold a conference with one thousand delegates. That that is very clear. But it's not exactly something that they discovered this week. Uh, I think anyone you know we've been looking at this conference for several months. The probability that mass meetings of that nature would be allowed in the in the midwinter was never very high. They could have done something about and it. And even next year, it's not clear that they can do no. that either. I mean, March. people, this is still quite a lot. Yeah, right? I, I still would think this would be irresponsible to have a thousand people, uh, even if even in the beginning of a vaccine deployment, you would mm -hmm. still probably not want to take that risk. So they, will so they have to, do to like prepare mailing votes. Right? Mailing votes. Okay. The SPD did the mailing votes. The Germans would probably say, I mean, you don't know our laws. Our laws are very strict. You can't just do an online thing like the Italians do. Like, you know, the five-star movement have this, this online platform and people, you, you Germans can't do that. It's not, you know, the internet is basically illegal <laughs> in, a, in an official sense. You could use it, but you can't do anything. You can't do serious stuff on it. Oh, no. And, uh, you know, the law hasn't, you know, has not adapted to the, the internet world and, and the digital world. But, you know, a mail-in vote is fine. And as we in the United States, this is obviously, you know, uh, uh, people always overestimate the, you know, the, 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 I mean, the, the internet is a far more safer, safer way <laughs> right. to vote than, 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 than mail-in votes. Yeah. Uh, but, but, you know, the, the law hasn't adjusted to that yeah. yet. Uh, so what's the deadline for them to choose a leader then? Like, when do they actually need to start changing their systems and getting an alternative in place? Uh, they, want to, they want to meet again in, in January. Um, they're eyeing a date in March. Uh, that is not possible to do this in March. Wolfgang Schäuble said he doesn't want this happening until April or May anyway, because, you know, he, his argument is the following. He says Merkel is chancellor until probably the end of the year, because even if there's an election in September, there will have to be a coalition negotiation that usually takes two or three months. So she will have another year ahead of us, ahead of her. And, you know, if, if a candidate was nominated now, that would be kind of the shadow chancellor already. Yeah. And her role would be diminished. So he said, let's just reduce that amount of time. Okay. What would Mertz look like as chancellor? Like, what kind of chancellor would he be? Um... <laughs> Terrible. Yeah, that's very hard. That's very hard. To, I mean, I've never actually trying to imagine that. Um, uh, but Divide yes, if he became CDU chairman, he would be chancellor because the CDU is in such a lead that it's at the moment I cannot see another party being the largest party in Germany because it's usually the largest party in Germany that nominates the chancellor. The only other party that would conceivably come close to the CDU would be the Greens. The Greens had a bad, you know, had lost a lot of support during the first wave of COVID because they didn't have a platform. There's basically their, their agenda was not, this was not their agenda. Uh, nobody talked about green issues in, the, in, the, in those months, but that's, that's happening again. Um, so my expectation is as we're going through the crisis, as people become less, uh, more disenchanted with the incumbents, mm -hmm. that was sort of a classic first, first, first wave effect that all the incumbents did really well. That's, you know, I would not take, assume that this is happening again. People will now focusing on policy mistakes, which is happening in Germany. People are criticizing the decision uh, for a second lockdown. Not everybody is in, in agreement. Some people want a stronger lockdown, but there are a lot of people who say this is not necessary. The data, this is not supported by the data. So this is, you know, Germany is becoming like everyone else in this in this respect, that it is becoming a controversial decision and a political decision. And therefore, people disagree about it. Yeah. Um, that's the, the, the that's where we are. That's the state of play. 
Well, controversy is there in France too, actually. Uh, Susanna, I wanted to talk about this with you too, because uh, uh, Macron did his big announcement on Wednesday and basically made the case that every other alternative measure, isolating the vulnerable, um, just allowing lots of people to die, um, these were just not options. And so he chose a new confinement, a new lockdown. There was a lot of controversy on Twitter. Uh, some people commented that he's crucifying the economy, that he has chosen to sacrifice the economy for a lockdown and we don't even know if it works. Um, others are saying that he did the right thing. He's protecting human lives. What did you think of Macron's lockdown? What, what are your thoughts going into the lockdown right now? Do you think France is going to be able to handle it? I mean, one of the things about the pandemic is that once you've chosen your policy, you're path dependent. You can decide on the lockdown, but then you have to stick to it. I mean, Sweden was the, the country that decided yeah. not to go there. Oh, and they had the option to stay away from lockdowns or only doing partial lockdowns. That is not the option that uh, Macron had at the table. So in a way, it was logical that seeing the data, seeing how many cases um, there were, and also how much of the uh, intensive care was taken up, the half of the, the beds are already taken up. And the predictions say that it's going to peak either in a, in a week's time or in three weeks' time, depending on the forecast. So this is a dramatic, uh, dramatic development that no one could have foreseen in the summer. And it means that you're way back. Uh, you're in terms of policy decision making. You're back on in, in, in sort of a March situation where you have to decide how, how do you prioritize? And uh, yes, you're, you're right. It, he, he made a different uh, announcement this time. The emphasis is more to say, well, the children are in school. Parents can work. So it's no longer about stay at home. It's really uh, protect and work. Mm -hmm. And that is a real difference. How this will feed through the economy, we don't know yet. I actually haven't seen what are the measures in terms of support. What are the measures for the companies uh, to sustain that? The problem is it will have a structural effect on the economy anyway. It's no longer like a transition. You're no longer uh, having sort of hanging on through yeah. a different crisis. It becomes a sort of a permanent feature and also will ask some tough questions for a business, whether we can decide or whether it's actually a good thing to survive. Um, yeah. Well, it's like you were saying, you can't turn the economy on and off like a light bulb. What I do find interesting is that the French are actually quite disciplined when it comes to lockdown, much more disciplined than the Germans. And there's much less resistance um, to change their habits um, than in Germany, where people say, well, or in Italy, even where you had riots. Yeah. Uh, and we didn't have, we haven't seen that in France. I'd say not yet. No. Not yet. <laughs> what could happen? I mean, I, I suspect, I mean, people, people do react differently to this. Yeah. But, but, you know, if the, if the optimistic forecasts are correct, uh, that this the peak is going to happen next week or the mm. week after, and then things get better. Okay, but if not, if the, if this continues beyond the four week period, yeah, uh, and I'm just not sure how the psychology is when people realize um, that this lockdown might last the entire winter. You're right. There were projections today from a statistician saying that if France wants to get it down to I think five thousand new infections a day, it's going to be fifty six days, and we don't know that this projection is completely accurate. No one does. It's all just a big guessing game. But 
how do leaders in France and Germany prepare their citizens for something like this? Like, I mean, Macron did this already. Living with the virus. Yeah. Living it's with the virus yeah. is actually meaning we have to be prepared. We don't know what it means, but it, it can mean that we have another third wave and another fourth wave. What hasn't happened yet is the realization that you might not have a job. Yeah. That hasn't happened in a big mm. way because we've had we've had these these uh, forbearance schemes, mm. the furloughs and government funded schemes. So people were basically, you know, they treated the first lockdown in France. They did this. They treated the first lockdown as a holiday. Yeah, they enjoyed uh, it, and it, it's nothing wrong with that. It's what I would have done that too. It, it's perfectly sensible and rational. But you know, a second you wouldn't do that a second or yeah. third lockdown, especially if you then realize that your company is about to be become insolvent. And you know, once once. Once the, 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 all the economic strain happens after COVID. When are people going to be losing their jobs? Like when would you forecast in 2021 now that there's more successive waves? At what point are the, are governments going to start to say we're pulling the plug on these support programs? In Germany, that can be said easily because after the elections. Uh, and and um, the situation for France will be more difficult because they'll have an election in 2023. 20, uh, 22. Uh, 22 even. So if, if, <laughs> if it's 22, then, then they will have to extend it until then. So that would have to, he would have to basically extend the, the support for another, for another year, which will become stressful. It's possible, but it, it would require a, a, an awful lot of support by the ECB and other... And, yeah, and it's not only the, the government that decides, it's also the banks that have to and play along, right? Moving to the big news of the day, um, another thing about your note that was interesting that no one else said was that this lockdown might serve a second purpose, um, that it might actually help protect French citizens from another terror attack. It's still really early right now, but news has broken of an attack in Nice today, a very gruesome knife attack. It has kicked off an enormous amount of controversy on Twitter so you have the former Malaysian prime minister tweeting that Muslims are a right to be angry and kill millions of French people. I think the tweet has been pulled, but this situation is like a powder keg. We've only seen one video of Macron's response so far. What did you think of his response to the latest round of terror attacks? I thought it was uh, very dignified. It was um, a good response. Um, he put the emphasis on the victims being Catholic and saying, we are in France. Everyone has the right to believe what he wants to believe. And be it a Catholic, be it a Muslim, you are here and have the freedom to believe what you want to believe. And I think that was a, that gave him a platform to make that very, that the Republican values to bring them forward and really make that case. And no matter whether you're Muslim or whether you're Catholic, mm -hmm. it's not about a victim story about, it's not about targeting the Muslims at all. It's not about Islam. And I think that made it very clear today. Um, what is going on in this with the whole terrorist attacks and, and also with the whole Recep Tayyip Erdogan. He's also weighing in and uh, calling for a boycott of French products uh, because of the um, because he mentioned the Mohammed cartoons and as in in his speech about freedom of um, expression. Linking them, I, I admit it was not a wise choice of words, uh, but it, it was not appropriate to response either. And I think the worst thing that the French could do at the moment is actually to 
uh, seed into that debate to actually lower their standards and actually engage in that debate. Erdogan has his own agenda and he, for him it's very important to create uh, enemies at the moment just to divert attention away from his own problems, real problems he has. His uh, economy is suffering hugely because Saudi Arabia imposed a boycott on Turkish products. So passing this uh, baton on to France is just another way for him to create a new kind of uh, image of an, uh, of an enemy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that it has to be kept in mind. So engaging and not putting any, any oil in the, in, in the fire of his is very important not to lower the standards. Yeah. Not to stoop to his level. Right. Exactly. And I think it, it's, it's so far, I th- I'm kind of, uh, I, I think that's, this, this is well handled. The French came out quite strongly saying these are our values and we will never, never want be blackmailed in any way. Uh, one final topic, I guess we can, I wanted to address was, uh, we, not something we usually cover, of course, I've been doing a lot of that this week, but, uh, looking ahead to next week, we've got the U S elections coming up, returning to the problem of mail-in ballots and the possibility of maybe Trump not conceding if he loses, or maybe he just wins anyway, depending on how accurate the polls are. Uh, Wolfgang, you wrote a note saying we should not trust polls. Why? Well, I'm, I'm not saying... <laughs> Who can we, we trust no, no, anymore? Let's just, put, let's just put it this way, what I wrote. <laughs> not saying we can't trust polls. Freaking what I'm out. saying is that we've had, um, you know, there is a lot of certainty about polls that 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 people should be careful about. Uh, uh, we've had a lot of experience with the UK polls and there were some people who got the referendum, the, the Brexit referendum, right. But those same people got the subsequent elections pretty badly wrong. And there is a confidence in the United States that poll averaging is the is the road to salvation. And I, I, I'm just saying, be careful about, you know, if you're adding up a number of bad polls, you come out with a bad poll. The only thing that that poll averaging does is it, it increases the sample. And the sample is important. You cannot really gauge American public opinion by just asking a thousand people. There are many factors that will come in. I mean, first of all, the mail-in balance, then there is a question of support might be different in terms of the, 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 you know, the eagerness to actually go to the polls on a, on a, on a rainy, possibly rainy day. Who knows? We've seen uh, quite a few surprises in, 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 in recent years, and these surprises are scattered. The, the, the point I'm just making is we should have a Biden win because not so much of the, what the polls are saying. The polls would support that view, of course, mm-hmm. but because he is not making the mistakes that Clinton did. Oh, he's more uh, likable too, right? He is more likable. <laughs> Unfortunately. Uh, and, you know, he's not, uh, he has not offended his voters to the same extent that she did. Yeah. <laughs> so there are a number, and, and Trump has a record. That's, the, that's, that's a quite serious thing. He has a record on COVID. He has a record on the economy that might that might be subject to different interpretation, but he has a, sub, a record on many issues that people you know people know what they get, and not all the people who voted for him you know liked what they get. So it's a different that's a different scenario. You would assume that the the um, um, the, the the challenger would make it, especially given the state of the economy right now. Well, didn't you read though Q three growth in the U.S. World War II, post World War II high? It's the highest it's ever been. I don't think can we take that seriously? Can we trust the news? GDP is an irrelevant data point at the moment. If 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 your if your lockdown is a policy induced 
uh, measure. An upturn is then a, a logical consequence. It doesn't tell you anything about the economy. It's just it's just a statistical artifact of 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 the locked of the lockdown. The, the the economic measures that you that we are that we're interested in from this is the. Uh, uh, I would be looking at employment levels after the crisis, whether this is holding up. Okay. I would looking at in measures of equality and inequality. Uh, these are the kind of relevant political measures. I don't think that GDP, GDP has lost importance as an indicator of, mm-hmm. of what's true and going on for a long time. It still has meaning, yeah. uh, but it's not the, 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 the newspapers vastly exaggerated because they, they seem they, they Traces like a football score you know, in this country is <laughs> doing better. It's, it's, easy. it's, it's easy, all in right? the and they're also the Brexit discussions. So they're looking yeah. at British GDP versus German GDP, and they look at these these sort of headline data. Whereas they have different, completely different working age populations, so you can't really make that comparison. If you look at productivity, Britain has had a hugely bad record before Brexit. That's the real story, and the question is, you know, why is that? We still not don't don't know this exactly. So so GDP isn't. I don't think it affects the voters. The, the voters care about their own economic security and their own economic outlook. And you know, this is clearly not as good as it was, uh, say, a year ago. So, yeah. uh, so my expectation is that Biden would win, and my expectation is that Europe would uh, would overestimate the impact of a Biden victory on transatlantic relations. So I think there will be an air of disappointment. All the issues that we have, whether it's trade, policy, um, you know, the, the, the Congress wants a trade deal with agriculture. The Europeans, the French are certainly not going to go for that. Uh, the Senate is hostile towards uh, the German North, North Stream or the European North Stream yeah, 2 I project. Mean, they're not the only ones, but yeah. <laughs> the Senate is going to, and, and after the election, it will still be, there still will be the same bipartisan majority in favor. Yeah. So a lot of these issues um, are going to be there. Now, he will probably fix the WTO appellate body thing. He will, there will be a number of symbolic issues. You know, he will probably go to NATO, to a NATO summit and be polite that, that hasn't <laughs> happened in a long time the bar is uh, very, very yeah, there will be point. sort of symbolic changes and all the the usual commentators will hail a new era of transatlantic exactly. friendship We're but the, the reality is reset. not going to be that yeah yeah oh boy okay do we have any good news this week did anything happy happen to anyone nothing just wanted to ask you about your arctic uh, circle but that's not <laughs> no that's news. even worse <laughs> No, the Arctic melting away. <laughs> melting away oh, is definitely even on the, on the Dooms level. Oh can, except God, the only, well, the only sort of potentially interesting issue with the Arctic story is that um, this is you know the, it's it's not a man-made disaster. It doesn't, or at least, it doesn't look to be a man-made. It is a disaster of incredible proportions. Yeah. The release of methane gas uh, uh, as a um, in in the Arctic. And it could have serious economic uh, consequences for the world economy because it would open up the northern Arctic Strait to trade routes. It would it would make it would bring China and the EU or Europe much much closer in terms of trade. In addition to the infrastructure investment that China is already making, so you know one would have to look at a very different geopolitical situation and while Europe is at the moment posing as uh, you know anti-Chinese in language and rhetoric that isn't happening on the ground in relation we are still running businesses with them 
and we just accept that we are now a little bit noisier than we were before that we basically care about security more and that i mean who you know we subject who are why to procedures we're not yeah. banning them but we subject them to procedures that may or may the not point a little bit yeah, more makes it more yeah. expensive for yeah. them and let and it gives who are a bit more time to do some good work and you know and some yeah, charity, so do some charity work so that they, they get <laughs> image the, they, improvement exactly so. i mean but we did see with sweden kind of sweden putting its foot down um but you're right and i would argue when it comes to Massive infrastructure like the Polar Silk Road. One of the reasons why I excluded that from the story this week was just because I looked into it and it seems like China is its own worst enemy when it comes to this. A lot of big announcements made, but everything runs into problems. And sometimes it just seems to be a headline that goes nowhere. So they have built some infrastructure, like in Norway, for example, a new bridge, and they've made these massive announcements for rail lines and, you know, all these big projects that, that are going to connect China to Arctic Europe. And there's a good deal of skepticism among some China watchers right now that any of this is actually going to come to fruition. And, you know, maybe the Belt and Road Initiative is a little bit more disorganized and scattered and scrambled, especially now with the pandemic and especially now with this very public if not really real pushback against China and Europe. Yeah, so there was there was also a couple of um, projects in uh, was it Macedonia or um, yeah. in um, in um, Montenegro where Chinese made oh, where the Chinese made investments and then they they pulled out and yeah. and people realized that the EU is a much more uh, forgiving, forbearing source of funds oh, yes. as Chinese the Chinese want their money back. So in that sense, they're not, they're not really vicious. They are not yeah. they're exactly. They're they're vicious. Yeah. They're enforcing it in in a, in a, in, a, in, a, in a different way. So it's 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 if you want to deal with them, you need to know what you're doing, and it's not a European way of, of doing business. Yeah. This you know, I mean, if you know, it's, I mean, I was wondering what the, what would have happened if the Chinese had invested in Berlin Airport. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, <laughs> You would have probably. Uh, I mean, it's 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 that kind of you know the permanent forbearance of of the of this thing is yeah. is just completely alien to the Chinese. They make a plan, they go for it. Um, you know, European. You know, we you know we we Europeans we don't finish our projects on time. That's true of the Germans as well as anyone late. else. <laughs> and we are we're fashionably you late, absolutely. <laughs> and the Chinese oh will find that very difficult. And you know, the Italian port infrastructure is difficult. There's also legal issues. Yeah. The, the, the Trieste port is legally not even part of Italy. It's part of a United Nations um, protected area and it's given that it's a special status under international law. Um, it's not so simple. Um, they have made the investments though. So mm -hmm. they is quite a bit quite a bit going on um i i think the chinese challenge is, is more subtle it's more it's more on the, on the level of technology yeah i think and that's where, where, that's right. where we have to take it very seriously they are they are very smart they they, are, they understand these these issues china is a is a competitor in those core european technologies in a way that america and others have never been yeah. this is this is where the european where there is a danger to the substance yeah. of european industry <laughs> It's going to be, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out, uh, definitely. Well, um, yeah, I guess next week I'll be calling in from Paris. Oh, no, I'll be no, in Rome. No. Okay, no. next week I'll be calling in from Rome. Give you an idea of what it's like on the ground there. Uh, thank you for listening. Until next time.